0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Edward McBride, finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. This week, we'll be asking Ryan Avent, our Free Exchange columnist, about what economics can tell us about gun violence in America.
1: It seems like there is a increasingly clear relationship between the rate of gun ownership in in an area and the amount of gun violence that we see.
0: And Simon Rabinovich, our Asia economics editor, will be taking us to the epicentre of China's banking black market. Because
2: Wenzhou was, was effectively standing alone, the Wenzhou networks of households, of factories and businesses came up with their own solution to financing...
0: First, America has been reeling from events in Orlando this weekend.
2: On Sunday, Americans woke up to a nightmare that's become mind-numbingly familiar.
0: A horrific massacre of dozens of innocent people. The worst mass shooting in our country's history. We know enough to say that this was an act of terror and an act of hate. The largest mass shooting in American history has further inflamed the ferocious debate over gun control in America, which is underpinned by deep political and cultural divides. But what can economics tell us about America's gun control impasse? I'm joined by Ryan Avent, our Free Exchange columnist, who's been writing about the economics of gun control in America. So, Ryan, uh, America has far more guns than any other rich country and and far more gun violence. Is that right? That is
1: right. Uh, As as far as rich countries go, America is just an extraordinary outlier on both counts. There is slightly more than one gun per person in America, which is several times larger than the next country down the line, which is Switzerland. Perhaps not coincidentally, the level of gun violence in America is also an outlier by uh, the standards of the industrialized world. In 2012, America had about 30 gun homicides per million people, to give you a, a point in comparison, Australia had about 1.4 per million people. And obviously, gun homicides aren't the only the way that people suffer the hands
0: of guns. Uh, suicides by gun are much higher in America than elsewhere, as are accidents. And so, uh, all of this, obviously, has an incredible human cost, many lives lost, many, many lives ruined. But presumably it also has an enormous economic cost. What, what, what does the research tell us about that? Um, well, the human cost is substantial. It's about
1: 32,000 people killed per year. That figure just surpassed the number of Americans killed in car accidents. It's it's difficult to put a precise figure on the cost uh, of gun violence. One estimate in 2012 put the number at about $300 billion. And academics which have tried to to sort of assign the social cost of gun violence to each gun have said that if we were going to incorporate that cost into the purchase, it would raise gun prices by as much as $1,800. So the economic effect uh, of these guns is, is, is just
0: enormous. But, of course, gun rights activists in America say that the the solution to criminals with guns is to have more law-abiding citizens with guns, that guns are a deterrent to crime, then, of course, gun control advocates say the opposite, that if you took guns out of everybody's hands, the society would be safer. Is there good uh, evidence uh, to support one side or the other of that argument? Increasingly, there is. But it, it's
1: a much harder thing to kind of adjudicate than you would imagine. If you were to put together a chart that had the number of guns uh, in a country on one axis and gun violence on the other, you get a very clear correlation between the two. And it would seem like uh, the connection is obvious. But when people try to dig into the numbers to really establish the causation, it becomes more complicated. As gun rights advocates argue, it could be that people are buying more guns and Response to high crime levels in order to protect themselves. But over the last sort of 15 to 20 years, as researchers have dug into the questions and tried to use more fine-grained data and natural experiments involving kind of when gun control laws are passed at the at local levels, it seems like there is a clear, uh, an increasingly clear relationship between the rate of gun ownership in in an area and the amount of gun violence that we see.
0: So, if, as you say, the the evidence has become clearer uh, that more guns do indeed lead to more gun violence, then you would expect uh, there to be political pressure in America to adopt some kind of stricter controls on on the sales of guns. And and indeed, most polls show that a majority of Americans are, are, are in favor of that. So why does that not happen in spite of the terrible persistence of uh, massacres like the one that took place in Orlando? It boils down to two things, really. One is just
1: the political economy of the issue, which is that you have a majority that is in favor of gun control, but at kind of a low-intensity level, that it's an issue that they care about, but they also care about lots of other issues. On the other hand, gun rights activists have a very high kind of preference intensity. They feel very strongly about this issue Uh, to the exclusion of almost all else. And that imbalance uh, is especially nasty in America because of the ways in which the, the U.S. political system enables minorities within Congress to have outsized power. So after the Sandy Hook massacre in 2013, there was a bill that was sponsored by both a Democrat and a Republican to adopt background checks in almost all gun purchases. This measure received a majority of votes in the Senate, but it nonetheless didn't move forward because the majority wasn't big enough to get over this procedural threshold. So the two of those things combined really make it
0: difficult to get anything done. So one of the reasons that, that measures like the one you just described seem so often to go down to defeat in America's Congress is that they're portrayed as the thin end of the wedge, the first step in in a secret government plan to, to take everyone's uh, guns away of every description, even from law-abiding citizens, even ones that have gone through background checks and so on. What would it take to significantly reduce gun violence? I mean, would the worst fears of the NRA have to be realized and everyone's weapons confiscated?
1: I think if you wanted to move American rates of gun violence to a level like that in another rich country, it would take quite substantial gun control measures. Australia passed sweeping measures after 1996 that banned assault weapons, banned certain kinds of powerful shotguns, which made it much harder to get a license to own a gun, uh, which led to buybacks of of millions of guns and had quite substantial effects on gun crime as a result. But I do think that uh, the evidence suggests that even smaller measures can have a meaningful effect. Every little bit
0: helps, I think. Ryan Avent, thank you very much. Let us know what you think by tweeting us at Economist Radio or emailing radio at economist.com. Now, China's economy has long been a little murky. From secretive state-owned firms to suspect statistics, good information has always been a little elusive. But there's one place in particular, the remote port city of Wenzhou, that's even harder to make sense of, but has nevertheless become a central character in the ongoing drama of Chinese finance. Simon Rubinovich, our Asia Economics editor, joins me now from Shanghai. Simon, what makes Wenzhou so unique? So Wenzhou is a a city in eastern China, and and it's always stood apart from the rest
2: of China for a variety of reasons. Geographically, it's relatively isolated. It's it's a coastal city, but it's ringed by mountains on the land side. Linguistically, the, the Wenzhou dialect is basically not understood by anybody else in China. And so it's always been its own place. It's always been sort of one of the most aggressive marketplaces in China.
0: And and so these special conditions, what what sort of uh, financial institution was allowed to thrive there as a result?
2: Because Wenzhou was effectively standing alone, the Wenzhou networks of households, of factories and businesses came up with their own solution to financing. Uh, They backed each other. And so Wenzhou was really at the origins of shadow banking in China. Uh, Eventually, the networks got quite a lot bigger. But so, so long as you were from Wenzhou, you were seen as being inside that trust circle.
0: And, and so can you give us a sense of scale? I mean, how big do these sort of informal credit work networks, these, these shadow banks, how, how big have they become in, in Wenzhou and, and in China as a whole?
2: So, I mean, by its very nature, it's it's hard to be precise about the exact side of shadow banking. If you estimate it from different angles, uh, the conclusion these days is that it's probably equivalent to about two thirds of GDP uh, nationally. In Wenzhou, before it, it ran, into its problems in 2011 when it had its own kind of financial crisis, uh, it was even bigger. It was was probably bigger than the overall city's GDP.
0: And and so what happened when things got rough, when, when the tumbling started?
2: In the early 2000s, when Joanie's, uh, the business people, began to fan out around the country, supported by money from their hometown, and they began to get into more speculative forms of business, whether it was playing the stock market or uh, investing in property. And they were very, very leveraged, and that worked well for a time. Fast forward to 2010-2011, China began to tighten its monetary policy, coming out of its its big stimulus after the financial crisis. And because the Wenzhionis were the most over-leveraged people and business people in China, they were also the first to really bear the brunt uh, of that tightening. So you began to have a series of defaults, and because the, the financial system was so shadowy and so opaque, you had these long, long chains of debt financing uh, that were ultimately very, very difficult to unpick. Uh, and so what might have been a concentrated crisis for sort of the most speculative of, of wenzhou investors spread throughout the city. So it, it was a really, really abrupt change of fortune for Wenzhou and for the
0: wenzhou And so where are we now, I mean, with the, with that complicated unraveling that you mentioned?
2: five years on the city is still slowly picking up the pieces from that there's been a big big effort from the central government to to bring the shadow banking into the sunlight is how they often describe it Uh, there's also been a big effort with with bankruptcy law in wenzhou because so many businesses got into trouble Um, there was this question of how could you begin to restructure them Bankruptcy law is something which is really in its infancy in China. Uh, And Wenzhou, having been at the forefront of experimenting with private sector-led development in the 1980s and 1990s, is now at the forefront with experimenting with bankruptcy law and restructuring. If you look at the growth in Wenzhou, it's, it's begun to pick up a little bit. Property prices have also been turning up. But they're still about forty to thirty percent, roughly, below their peak five years ago. So they still have a long, long way to go to get back to where they once were.
0: And so, what's the moral of this for for China more broadly, both in terms of you know, when China's debt mountain might might actually cause a crisis, and in terms of how uh, China might recover from such a crisis if it happens?
2: Because Wenzhou is is an extreme case. Uh, problems in China will not exactly parallel the problems in Wenzhou, but in small it's a preview of the kinds of problems that would probably arise if China continues to let debt build up as, as it has been doing for several years now uh, that's that's you know while things are still on the upside Eventually, when things you know come to the downside, when growth slows more sharply, when the debt problems begin to emerge, uh, I think Wenzhou is, is an example of how the government has to be uh, bolder initially uh, in dealing with the problems. I mean, here we are five years on, and they're finally talking about bankruptcy and restructuring in Wenzhou. Uh, if they had done that in 2012, 2013, the recovery in Wenzhou probably would have been a lot quicker. I think just one final note of warning, uh, if you will. As difficult as it has been for Wenzhou to recover, ultimately it's one city. It's a city of 10 million people. If you have bigger cities, bigger provinces running into problems without a similar sized country around them to support them, then I think the overall recovery story becomes one that uh, potentially is even longer and more protracted.
0: Simon Rabinovich, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's it for Money Talks this week. Goodbye.